Hello and welcome to Filling the Sink, a podcast from Catalan News. My name's Lorcan Doherty and today we're talking about Salvador Sagi. Salvador Segui y Rubinat, known as El Noy del Sucre, the sugar boy, was a key figure in Catalonia's impassioned, revolutionary and deadly workers' movement in the early 20th century. He was shot dead aged just 35. 100 years on from his death, an exhibition in Barcelona is remembering this larger-than-life character's contribution to Catalan society and to the worldwide fight for better working conditions. Killian Tunes went along to see it. Hi, Killian. Hi, Lorcan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Coming up a bit later on, we'll be hearing from the exhibition's curator, Sergi Martín. But first, tell us who was Salvador Segui? Well, I suppose to sum up, you could say that he was one of the most prominent trade union leaders of the early 20th century. This was a time in Catalonia's history, especially where trade unionism, anarcho-syndicalism was huge. Anarchism itself was a massively popular ideology at the time. And Salvador Segui himself subscribed to this ideology. But as well as that, he was one of the biggest characters really in Barcelona society at the time. To understand who he is is key to understanding the workers' movement in Catalonia at the time as well. He was born in 1886 in a small town in the Catalan countryside called Tornabaus, uh, but his family moved when he was just one uh, to Barcelona. And like a lot of children at this time, Killian, he didn't go to school. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the school system wasn't exactly set up the same way that we understand it today. But like I mentioned, like the anarchist ideology was so prevalent at the time. Part of that was also just people's education movements. So that's where he learned to read and he enjoyed that a lot. He got to know the classics, a lot of anarchist teachings as well. And and this is what really kind of informed his, his outlook on the world and who he became as a man then afterwards. And then, as you mentioned, he was this big character in in Barcelona society. You know, if you think about the social scene of the time, we think of uh, bars and terraces. And he was this big physical guy, you know, uh, hugely charismatic, a great speaker. He had people hanging on his words, whether that be thousands of people or just, you know, in late night drinking dens in Barcelona as well. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, he was he was, by all accounts, a natural born leader, very driven, very enterprising and, and absolutely very inspiring. Naturally, people were drawn to him. And, and this is what led to him to become the full leader of the CNT trade union, which was uh, one of the biggest trade unions in the early part of the 20th century. But more than that, he was the voice of so many ordinary people who couldn't read or write, never went to school. Like People who, exactly. Segui was a man for these people who were suffering greatly from the conditions of the rapidly expanding capitalist system of the day. And it all started from a very young age as well. Him and some friends had a had a group which were called uh, the Fils da Puta, uh, the Sons of Bitches, and uh, later renamed El Senza Noms, the Nameless. And these were basically, they carried out I mean, maybe you would say vigilante or, you know, what what would be described as direct, direct action. action. Direct action. That's the term. Okay. <laughs> Against what, what they saw as like local injustices and things. Yeah, this is like the basically the beginnings of, uh, you know, his political career, just as, as essentially a child, young teenager with his mates. And his nickname, Sugar Boy? Yeah, it's quite a funny one, isn't it? Um, supposedly, it came from the fact that he had a bit of a sweet tooth. He <laughs> apparently liked to nibble on the sugar cubes that you'd get with your with your coffee. And this Barcelona that he was growing up in then was a rapidly changing place. Uh, you know, we'd seen Catalonia throughout the second half of the 19th century, especially change from 
more of an agricultural place to this industrial hub. With that population boom in Barcelona, there were countless people like Sagi who moved from the Catalan countryside to Barcelona, but also from all over Spain, uh, you know, to work in the construction boom for the 1888 Universal Exhibition and in the factories that were springing up all the time. Uh, but the conditions were quite poor. Awful, you could say, exactly. At the beginning of the 20th century, workers had no days off during the week. The working day would normally last 12 to 16 hours, imagine that. But on top of that, pay was low. Many families all lived together in the same room. Dark, dirty, dingy homes. Children were sent to factories. Uh, Women had to work as well because a family could not survive without everybody uh, working and bringing in their own wage. And of course, you have to remember, there's absolutely no existence whatsoever of this time of sick pay, any sort of insurance. So if you got sick or if you were hurt, you had to keep working, absolutely. Otherwise, you would not get paid and you could easily starve. When you got too old, again, you either died of starvation or you had to live off the charity of your neighbours. These are the horrible working conditions that basically led to a lot of suffering among the people. And it led to people being really frustrated with how their lives were going which then in turn was channeled into the first workers' movements and the first unions for people to look for these better conditions. A phrase I've seen a lot, you know, this last week reading about Salvador Sagi in this period is the economy was doing great, but the people weren't. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Lorcan. These are the terrible conditions that led to a lot of conflict among society. This is the context in which these anarchist ideas started spreading, and that led to a lot of frustration among, among the people, which was then channeled largely into two different paths. One was violence, and one was organisation. And as we're about to discuss, a lot of that was also went hand in hand a lot of the time as well. I mean, that's another thing you notice reading about this time is that it was an incredibly violent time, like on the streets. And a lot of this was down to the increasing gaps between this growing working class and the kind of traditional Catalan bourgeoisie. And well, as you said, that led to violence. Yeah, precisely. So that exhibition that I went to kind of lays out really clearly that there were kind of three separate, very important periods of violence that tell the story of the class conflict during this era. So we can kind of imagine the sporadic attacks that happened at the end of the 19th century, more or less. That kind of came to a head with the bombing of the Liceo Opera Hall in 1893, which killed 20 people. Uh, That was committed by an anarchist at the time. You can take a look at the second period then, between 1906 and 1909, which ends in the Semana Tragica, the Tragic Week, which is also known as the Rosa de Foc. That literally translates as Rose of Fire. This was a workers' uprising, basically, against military mobilisation for a war in Morocco. Uh, Barcelona saw street barricades, clashes with police and state officers, and the burning of many churches and convents at the time as well. And the third period would be El Pistolerisma. Uh, <laughs> it's very difficult to Pistol- translate. Yeah, so I've, so seen, I've seen it translated as gun law. So basically, you know... Effectively, know, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Like, Violence ruled the streets, yeah. essentially. A bit like Chicago under Capone, I've also seen it compared to, you know. That could exactly be it, yeah. yeah. So this was 1919 to 1923. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, actually, because it had tragic consequences for Salvador Segui. But as well as these episodes of violence, there was also, as you say, a mass organisation taking place at the same time. 
Exactly. So we start to see the beginnings of the first trade unions, uh, mobilisation of workers, strikes. They start coming thick and fast. And Segui was at the heart of the trade union movement from the very beginning. He was part of the Solidaritat Obrera, uh, which like existed worker in... Worker solidar- Solidarity. Exactly, yeah. Worker Solidarity, which existed in the first decade of the 20th century. And he eventually joined the CNT, the Confederacio Nacional del Trabajo, uh, which became the biggest anarchist trade union in the country. He joined that in 1915. And then from here onwards, we start to see he gains more and more prominence in these movements. There was a huge general strike here in 1917. And then a key moment the following year, the Sants Congress. Exactly. Now, this was huge, both in the story of Salvador Segui, as well as the workers' movement at the time. In Sants, in the Congress, it's when they make huge changes to the organisation of the trade union itself. And one of the main agreements to come out of this meeting was Salvador Segui's proposal of unifying the different unions, rather than having separated ones um, by their own trade. But rather, this is the birth of the single union. Yeah, before you had, like, the Baker's Guild, the Butcher's Guild, it was all very much bisector. That was that was like a medieval structure, if you like, and this was like forming what we would know today as a modern union. Exactly, exactly. So this would give affiliated workers uh, far more power and strength in negotiating with employers um, as a conflict in one industry, for example, say maybe in an electricity factory. Uh, this could lead to action from other industries, say, for example, tram and train drivers, if they were all part of the same union, all fighting for the same causes and goals. So at the Sands Congress, they agreed on things like promoting women's unions, demanding an eight-hour workday, establishing minimum wages. And out of this Congress, Salvador Segui emerged as one of the undisputed trade union leaders in the CNT in Catalonia. That was one of the biggest chapters in his story. And another one was the La Canarenca strike, uh, which happened the following year. Because it came after this Sants Congress, uh, it was a strike that spread among workers from different industries uh, far quicker than it would have before without this idea of the single union. To tell us more about this moment in history, here's Sergi Martin, the curator of the exhibition on Salvador Segui, currently taking place at Palau Robert. Uh, where we were actually last week as well, if you were listening to last week's podcast on Passage de Gracia. Back again in Palau, Robert. This time Killian went along to find out more. In January 1919, the company Riegos y Fuerza del Ebro, a subsidiary of Barcelona Traction Light and Power, better known as La Canadenca for being Canadian-owned, lowered salaries. The workers asked for the advice and support of the Unified Water, Gas and Electricity Union of the CNT, and then the management of the company responded by firing eight of the affected workers. Shortly after, the rest of the billing staff went on strike in solidarity with their colleagues. The response from management was tough. 140 workers dismissed and replaced with staff from other sections. Exhibition curator Sergi Martín explains. La vaga de la Canadenca, estem parlant de principis de l'any 1919, va paralitzar la ciutat. The La Canadenca strike in 1919 brought the city to a standstill. It started in one of the most important electrics companies in the city. And from here it spreads through class solidarity across 
towards the city and to other industries. Trin and Trump drivers joined in, and from there the whole city resists until they achieved improvements. Bit by bit, the sentiment of solidarity spread between the different units, and more and more workers downed tools. By February 8th, the strike was almost total in the company and had a significant impact on daily life in the city. Life at the time was difficult. There was barely any electricity. People began collecting food for those who needed, workers who were striking. Women had an important role in the distribution of this solidarity too. For the frightened bourgeoisie, the strike, limited at first, spread uncontrollably. The response of the civil government and the employers' federation to this obvious loss of control was to double down. Over 3,000 workers were jailed in Munchuik and martial law was declared. On top of this, life was getting very difficult for the striking population. We shouldn't think in terms of modern parameters. This was a city brought to a standstill that was trembling because people earn money by the day. Every day that you didn't work, each week you didn't work, you made no money. So this was a society that became poor. Historians today marvel at how well prepared the strike was, despite being mostly improvised. During that era, whenever turbulence arose in society or other strike actions were undertaken, union leaders were sent to jail. Segui himself was already imprisoned before La Canadenca strike, like many other union leaders, all unable to affect developments. Segui was a man of words over guns. He always preferred reaching agreements without resorting to the use of violence. The CNT figurehead was eventually brought out of prison and given the responsibility of negotiating the end terms of the strike. Salvador Seguí had un papel importantísimo de fet en en el final de la vagada la canadenca. Salvador Seguí had a very important role in the end of the la canadenca strike. The positions of the various factions were very contrasting, and Seguí managed to get most of the workers to go back to their jobs in exchange for accepting the 8-hour workday and the partial elimination of child labor as the big achievements. In a famous scene at the Las Arenas bullring in front of thousands of impassioned workers, Segui managed to temper emotions and bring the majority to a consensus. There, the strike came to an end, although not all of the demands were met. Without a doubt, achieving the eight-hour workday was an immeasurable victory, even though it was never fulfilled. This was another frustration, another broken promise from the industrial employers. But in any case, it was achieved. The history books will always say that Barcelona was the first European city with the eight-hour workday, largely thanks to Salvador Seguí. However, the more radical side of the union wanted more, including the release of all workers who were imprisoned because of the strike. Salvador Seguí era una persona... Salvador Segui was a very pragmatic person. He needed to have things clear and reach agreements whenever possible. It didn't matter to him who he made agreements with. During the La Canadenca strike, he tried to make agreements with the government and employers to attain the eight-hour workday. This idea of being a deal-seeker made him an enemy of a lot of people. The more radical wing of the CNT never forgave him for reaching a deal with part of the establishment and Spanish police. On the other hand, the employers were not interested in having someone who was capable of reaching deals and mobilizing the masses. Segui found himself in between two sides, an enemy of all, and with fewer and fewer friends willing to defend him from the various attempts on his life from that point on. 
que poguessin defensar-lo dels diferents atemptats que van tenir a partir d'aleshores. It was clear that after such an historic chapter in the story of the workers' movement in Catalonia, one which delivered unprecedented results but that did not satisfy everyone, and in an atmosphere of ever-increasing violence, Salvador Segui's days were numbered. That was Sergi Martín, our thanks to him. These were dangerous times there for Salvador Segui, but also in Barcelona in general. So if we just, you know, take a step back, First World War came to an end in 1918. It had been very profitable for Spain, which had stayed neutral. And Barcelona's location on the Mediterranean, meaning that it had easy access to North Africa, to France, to Italy, uh, meant it was a very popular place uh, for, well, smuggling, weapons, drugs, even prostitution networks, and uh, attracted... Uh, you know, all sorts of uh, dodgy characters, you could characters. say. Yeah, Most exactly. Yeah. The city was full of guns and full of hitmen as well, willing to do jobs for pay. Uh, as well, you have to think, the First World War, it was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Horrific death had become normalised by the end of this period. So when you add up all of these ingredients, it's not really that much of a coincidence that El Pistolarisma, this period of, of gun violence, started right after the war in Barcelona. And of course, it wasn't exclusive to Barcelona. It did happen all over, but Barcelona was definitely the central hub for it. So this period, El Pistolarisma, it lasted until there was a military coup in Spain, Primo de Rivera's military coup, which is 1923. What was this period like then, Killian? Yeah, so looking back, we can definitely say that it was it was sort of a social phenomenon that began in around this time. It was a period of violence. It was a period of open class war, featuring the proliferation of death squads, hitmen, thugs hired by the bourgeoisie, business leaders to basically harass, attack, kill trade union leaders and anarchists, and vice versa as well. We've seen plenty of violence from the anarchists towards the bourgeoisie. But Sergi Martin, who I spoke with at the exhibition, he estimated that the vast majority of the deadly victims were the trade unionists, the anarchists. In 1920, one of Sagi's good friends, Francesc Layette, was one of the first major victims of this uh, uh, pistolerisma. And Sagi, during this time, was a bit of a dead man walking. We had Francesc Massia, uh, who was a politician, a future president of Catalonia. He sent him a letter warning him that, you know, his life was in danger. Teresa, his partner, uh, endured sleepless nights and begged him not to go out as much as, as he did. But on March 10th, 1923, Killian Inevitable happened. Yeah, um, he was walking in the Raval area of Barcelona, uh, just on the corner of Carrer Cardena, which no longer exists, and Carrer San Rafael. And that's where he was shot on the street, uh, becoming another victim of this class war between the workers and the employers. And, you know, it was a bit of a, a guerrilla attack uh, several people. Some people say that the actual perpetrator was a former admirer of Segui, uh, Inocencia Fethed. But, well, whether or not it was him exactly, everything points it to be being 
uh, a member of the Syndicatslures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the free trade unions, as we could translate that to. Uh, this was in name another trade union, but had a completely different way of working than the unions that we've been speaking about up to now. This basically represented the employer's interests and, more interestingly, carried out their dirty work. So were very involved in, in the pistolerisme, these guerrilla killings. They were Carlist in ideology, which means very monarchist Spanish at the time, very traditionalist. It's impossible to say how many people died during this period. You know, there's estimations from 300 right to 1,000, but it was a, a dark time in Catalonia's history. 100 years on, he is maybe not the most well-known figure. Another one of his best friends that he hung around with all the time, uh, Luis Companys, also became president of Catalonia and, you know, very famously was executed after the Civil War by by Franco. Uh, Segui, well, for me as an outsider, I didn't know him until we started looking into this. No, and me neither, no. You have to remember as well that during the Franco dictatorship, they effectively tried to repress all memory of him. They tried to destroy records of him. But as well, Segui, he wasn't a writer. He was a man of action. He was a speaker. He he. he mobilized people. So, but there's very little kind of written uh, legacy that, that he left behind him. He is remembered by the square in the Raval neighborhood of Barcelona that bears his name. And I suppose uh, in a roundabout way, we can thank him for the eight-hour workday. Yeah, we can thank him for a lot of the dignity that, uh, that, we, that we get to enjoy today that certainly the people of his time did not get to take for granted like we do. The exhibition at Palau Robert, it's free and it runs until the 3rd of September and well worth checking out, Killian. Absolutely, yeah. No, I really, really enjoyed it. I'd implore anyone to go to it if they can. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to just add about this whole discussion is is just a little bit about a reflection of of the memory of Salvador Segui. And I was kind of invited to do this by the very last panel that you see at that exhibition. What the visitors are, are met with is, is a selection of headlines and subheads from newspapers, stories taken all from very recent times, like only the previous months. And all of them are stories of tragedy, suffering, that the exhibition curator believes that many of these are the things that Salvador Segui would be fighting for. Uh, he sees a lot of parallels in today's contemporary society with the struggles of Salvador Segui. He fought for dignity for the working classes, dignity in factories, the eight-hour working day, the eradication of child labour, uh, but all in all, just better life conditions for people. And he, he was very passionate about culture. He was very passionate about the working class becoming educated, becoming cultured, because he felt that one of the best ways to stop a dictatorship is through culture. Sergi Marti said to me, it's it's not possible to manipulate a cultured working class. And that is part of the reason why Segi fought so hard to spread these ideas of education, teaching and critical thinking. Time now for our Catalan phrase. What's this week, Killian? This week we've got da sucra. Dasugra, so made of sugar? Is there some, no, or uh, literally of sugar, but definitely comes with the idea of made of sugar. And what does it actually mean? So it means to be a little bit fragile, perhaps. Uh, you'd often hear kids saying it in, in when they're playing games. You could say the kid would say that they are de sucra, they're made of sugar, during a game, which kind of means that they're invincible in that moment, like they can't be caught in a game of chasing or, or hide and seek, possibly. Dasugra. 
Well, that's us for today. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today, Killian. Thanks for having me, Lorcan. Absolute pleasure. Our thanks again to Sergi Martin. And uh, thanks to you for listening. We're back again next weekend with another episode of Filling the Sink. Until then, from me, Lorcan Doherty, and all of us here at Catalan News. Bye for now. Adieu. Thank you.